Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. Ben's going to be uh, teaching us about one of the characteristics of God and how that should shape us in the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to pick a story up from John chapter 13. It just comes after, it's just the tail end of the story where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. So reading from verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, right and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Awesome. As Ross mentioned, my name's Ben. Uh, it's great that we can keep going through this series together. Um, all the Open Doors chat as well, there's something to be mentioned about that too. It's International Day of Prayer for Open Doors. So right around the world, churches and people are praying for the persecuted church. So when you go home today, would you commit them to prayer? Take that card, as Ross mentioned, and pray for them as we join with the global church praying for our brothers and sisters in that. Hey, let's pray and then we'll hook into this passage together. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of grace and kindness. We thank you that as we come together um, this morning, that we can have full confidence that the living God of all power and all authority is the God who speaks to us and who shapes us and challenges us. And we pray that you would do that today. We pray that um, however we've come this morning, um, that you would meet us where we are that you would comfort, challenge, move among us. And we pray that this morning we would walk out different people today because of your word and the work that you do here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God good? That might be, in 2022, one of the most important questions that we can ask. Is God actually good? Now, I don't know how you'd answer this. We all have a different gut reaction to that. And depending on your experiences of God, of church, of faith, you know, today might be your first time or your first time in a long time. The reality is we all have a different answer to this question, is God good? For me, when I think about this, I think of places that I've seen this statement. And uh, often over the years, it's on social media and it's when good stuff happens to people. Now, you might have seen this with the hashtag or the tagline at the bottom, God is good. You know, you get the picture of the engagement. The fingers of newly, freshly painted, the ring is on, he finally proposed, God is good. You've seen that, right? We've all seen that. The, the marriage pictures, God is good. The end of university, God is good. Exams are finished, God's, uh, God is good. It's a great meal, God is good. Or the Christmas tree is finally up. God is good. We've all seen that. 
right? It's everywhere. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's important that we remember the giver behind the gift. We thought about this a few weeks ago, but social media is an interesting beast. And what happens on social media is you end up drawing conclusions based on what you see. So we see good circumstances and the tagline, God is good, but what we don't see is bad circumstances. Very rarely do you see that on social media. Even rarer is average circumstances. And even more rare again is the tagline at the bottom of bad and average stuff, God is good. Right? We, we very rarely see that. And so what happens is we see this online on social media and the implication is God is good because circumstances are good. But that's a problem. That's a real big problem because we know circumstances are not always good. We know that. We live in a world that is under the curse of sin. Everywhere we look, we kind of face the pollution of sin through sickness and suffering and death. We're sitting here this morning having experienced that. Over the last few months or the last few years, we know that circumstances are not always good. So if God is good because circumstances are good, if that's the implication that has uh, the conclusion that we've drawn, then there's a problem. And so what we want to do this morning is ask this question, is God really good? And how do we know that God is good whatever circumstances we face? And how do we see and experience His goodness? And of course, in a series called Pursuing Greatness, how do we go after this? What does it look like for us as a people to pursue goodness? Well, today, this is what we're going to look at. When we open up God's Word, we're going to look at this. And, and up front, as Ross mentioned before, we're, we're working through the fruit of the Spirit, but today we're going to do two. Pretty radical here, two aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to do kindness and goodness. And the reason for that is they're kind of two sides of the one coin. So kindness in our growth group books is defined as the sincere desire for someone's happiness. That's what kindness is. Kindness is the desire, the sincere desire from our heart for someone's best. Goodness is kindness in action. Goodness is kindness in action through words or deeds. So kindness is the thought, goodness is the deed. Okay, so that's what we're looking at today, kindness and goodness. And let's begin by seeing this first and foremost in Jesus. So if you've got your Bibles there, have them open. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. But we're going to start at the beginning of this moment in chapter 13 at verse 1. It starts like this. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew the, that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, now let's just check ourselves here. So John is setting the scene for us. It's the Passover. Uh, what that means is um, Jesus is about 15 hours away from being killed on the cross. That's where we are at to in, in the story. In 15 hours' time, he'll be hanging on the cross. And, and he's at this meal, and we're told he loved his disciples to the end. Now that's interesting because a few weeks ago, when we were doing the fruit of the Spirit, we started with love. We saw how love was the umbrella term. For the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And I think we've seen that on our journey so far with, with joy and peace and patience. They're aspects of love. Well, kindness and goodness are no different to that. And we see that as we keep reading. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. 
How do we see kindness and goodness, the thought and deed in, in God, in Jesus? Well, we see it in this moment as he washes the disciples' feet. Now, this is a really big deal. I mean, it's a big deal if you came in to church this morning and we washed your feet on the way in. You would, you would sense that. But this is a big deal for Jesus for two main reasons. Who's at the meal and uh, the, the nature of washing someone's feet in the ancient world. So who's at the meal? Well, we got it there in verse 2. Judas is at the meal, right? So let's just soak that up for a moment. Judas, the one who's going to betray Jesus, who was with Jesus for three years, a close friend who will betray him, He's at the meal. Jesus will wash Judas's feet. That is a big deal. It's also a big deal, though, because of the nature of the ancient world and foot washing in the ancient world. And in the ancient world, someone in prominence would never, ever wash someone under them. Uh, they'd never wash their feet. And, and we learn this about Jesus, that he is someone in prominence. So verse 3 there, we saw that. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, so Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he has all power and all authority. He knows that he's the living God of everything. And everything in the world is underneath Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He knows where he's going. He knows where he's come from. And if we take a step back from this passage, what do we expect of someone in prominence, of someone in power? What do we expect from the King of Kings? We expect them to be lifted up. I mean, you, you think about it today, uh, if, if we think about this, it, it hasn't been too long since the Queen died, and King Charles III has, has been brought into power. It only took him 73 years, but he got there, and now he's in power. And what happened to him? Well, he's, he's everywhere. He's made known. He's lifted up. He's, he's put in prominence everywhere. We see him all over the place. You know, there's videos of him coming out. He's at more important meetings. Uh, he's got more money. He's got more servants serving him. And not too distant, in the not too distant future, his face will be on the coins of those people who still use cash. He'll be everywhere. He is everywhere. And that's what we expect from someone in power. Now, Jesus is in power, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the highest authority there is. But what does he do? Well, it's not what we're expecting because we're expecting prominence. But instead, Jesus doesn't lift himself up. Instead, he lowers himself. He goes lower. The king becomes a servant and he washes their feet. Now, this is interesting in the ancient world. Uh, in fact, in the ancient world, this is something the Jews would never allow to happen. Uh, in, in fact, they thought of foot washing as so disgusting, they wouldn't even let their own servants wash their feet. I mean, just soak that up, right? The Jews wouldn't let Jewish servants wash their feet. That was reserved for the Gentile servants, the lowest of the low, the people outside the Jewish community. What Jesus is doing here is an unparalleled event in the ancient world. There are no other moments where we get teachers or lords or politicians or anyone in power washing the feet of those underneath them. Yet this is what Jesus does. Jesus lowers himself. The king becomes a servant. He does something radical in this moment in the ancient world. Literally, no other records of this happening. So, so the question then is, okay, so why is Jesus doing this? Why does he do something no one else would do? Why does the king become a servant? Well, at the heart of it, it's got to do with kindness and goodness. We're seeing here, it's not just Jesus' thought 
that he wants the best for people. It's his deeds as well. It's kindness and goodness. He's displaying this to his disciples and he's washing their feet. The king becomes a servant and he's showing that he loves them. He's for them. He desires their best and he does something about that. So as we think about this, it begins with seeing the kindness and goodness of Jesus. No one else washes their disciples' feet, but Jesus does. But of course, as we're here this morning, the question for us is, well, what about us? Right? How do we experience the kindness and goodness of Jesus? And, you know, we weren't there in the room. We didn't have our feet washed. And even if we did, we'd probably still want a little bit more. So, so what does it look like for us to experience this? Well, this is where the story goes, and it, it's quite profound. So so let's have a look. Verse 6, we read, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you, it's almost like he's saying, Lord, are you seriously going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You see, ancient world, no, you're never going to do this. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was going to betray him, uh, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. So how do we experience the kindness and goodness of Jesus? Well, this is where Jesus points in this exchange. Now, Peter does what we would expect. You know, he says in this moment, you're never going to do this because this never happens. Right? Peter wouldn't even let Jewish servants wash his feet. So, of course, he's not going to let his teacher. He says, you're not going to do this. But Jesus says, no, I must do this. And as Jesus responds to Peter, what he's showing is the way that people experience the kindness and goodness of Jesus. He points to this. And key to this is in verse 8 where he says this, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, this is a crucial sentence. Jesus is not simply speaking about a bath or washing his feet. He's speaking about something bigger here, and he's pointing to a deeper reality. And the deeper reality is this. Unless people are made clean by God, they cannot have a relationship with God. They cannot be connected with God. Now, I know this might seem a little bit cryptic perhaps in this passage but if we can take a step back and see it in light of the whole story of the bible we would see this pretty clearly in fact in the story of the bible in the old testament what we see is that sin makes people unclean so sin being the bad things we do the good things we don't do sin being rejecting god and ignoring god the the nature of sin it makes people unclean before god now, now, I think, even though that's what the Bible says, I think some of us might actually know that. You know, if we think about the nature of guilt or shame today, if we think about regrets that all of us might have as we've come here this morning, you could describe guilt and shame and regrets as that feeling of uncleanliness. Some of us might describe You know, those moments that we've done where we know we shouldn't have said what we said. The things that haunt us because we acted in the wrong way. We hurt people. We might describe that as unclean. The Bible describes that as unclean. It says our sin makes us unclean. Sin makes people unclean. And the problem with being unclean is that before a holy and perfect God, there is a fractured relationship. It's a broken relationship. 
No longer can we be with God in perfect harmony. Now, in the Old Testament, God showed His people this, and He showed them, and He wanted to point out that changing from unclean to clean was a really big deal. In fact, He gave them signs and symbols pointing to a greater reality. So, for example, for certain things, uh, you would be made unclean, and then to be clean, you would have to go outside the camp for seven days. Right? I mean, just picture that. They do something wrong, and they've got to go outside of the community for seven days, and on the seventh day, they can wash and be brought back in. And this was God's way of kind of showing them to, be, to move from unclean to clean, something needed to change. Uh, there were other things where you had to wash your hands and your feet ceremonially. It was a big deal. So if you touch certain things, you would have to wash in a certain way, because to go from unclean to clean was a big deal. Even for other things the nature of the actions that made people unclean, an animal would need to be sacrificed. And the idea here of the animal dying was that something had to take your place. And so symbolically, the animal's blood that was shed would make you clean. Now, in the Old Testament, all of this was a shadow, a sign, a symbol. It was God's way of helping them realize that sin makes people unclean. But in the Old Testament, if you follow the pattern through, what ended up happening was the people continued to reject God and ignore God, despite these patterns, despite these signs and symbols helping them see the nature of it. And eventually, what happened was because of their uncleanliness, because of their sin, they get kicked out completely from their land. They get rejected by God because of their uncleanliness. Now, this is a problem in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, God promises that one day He will make them clean. One day God, in His grace, will redeem and rescue His people by making them clean. Now, let's come back to John 13. Because He says, Jesus says, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me, in verse 8. But then have a look at verse 10. He says this sentence here, or this, these four words, And you are clean. So Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And then he says, you are clean. Now, how are they clean? Well, again, let's take a step back from this passage and, and see it in the story of the Bible. We know this from what will happen. You see, in 15 hours from this meal's time, Jesus would die on the cross. And it was this moment on the cross that would make people clean. In fact, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, and you can see it on the screen behind me, John, in another letter to churches, says this, The blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. So what we see then is right throughout the story of the Bible, the, the way that people are made clean from being unclean is not from simply going outside the camp and, and then washing on the seventh day. It was because Jesus went outside the camp. The way that people go from being unclean to clean is not through an animal dying and the blood somehow cleaning you. No, the way that people go from unclean to clean is through Jesus dying on the cross and His blood cleansing you as He takes your place. The way that people go from unclean to clean is not through ceremonially washing hands and feet. But as Jesus died on the cross with His hands and His feet bloodied so that we could be made clean. And the reality of the cross is this moment is what makes people clean, past, present, and future. The cross is the moment that God's followers, Jesus' followers, are made clean. Now, in this moment, this story here, 
as Jesus is speaking to the disciples about washing their feet and, uh, and he's trying to help them see what's unfolding, Jesus is pointing to this day of the cross. That's why he said, you don't get it now, but one day you will, later you will. But of course, for us, as we read this, this is how we can see and experience the kindness of our God. This is how we can see the goodness of our God. It's through the cross, because the cross is the public historical declaration that the living God desires your best. You see that? The cross is the historical moment where the God of the universe declares He wants your happiness. And, and the cross declares he's, He doesn't just desire it, He did something about it. The cross tells us that God doesn't want you to die in your sins and to be outside the camp and outside the community. God wants you to know the hope of eternal life and the hope beyond this grave. The cross is the declaration of God's kindness and goodness. Now, we have to see this. It's really crucial we see this, actually, because our temptation is to look to our circumstances. Right? That's what we want to do. We want to look to our circumstances and say, our circumstances are what tell us about God's kindness and goodness. But our circumstances can't do that because we know the reality that our world is too volatile. We all know that. You live long enough and eventually you will suffer. We will all face sickness. We will all face death. If circumstances tell us about God's goodness, eventually it will tell us that God is not good. That's where we will end up if circumstances determine whether God is kind and good. But it's not the only place that tells us. In fact, it's not the place that tells us. The cross is the place that tells us. Because when we look to the cross, what we see is that God is genuinely for us. The cross is the moment where historically and publicly God declared His heart that He desires your best. And he did something about it. You see, this morning as we gather together, we have to see this. Because to the question, is God good, all of us might have a different response. But I wonder, like, like as you came in this morning, do you see that, do you think that God's heart towards you is that he genuinely desires your happiness? Do you think that? Do you believe that deep in your heart that the living God wants best for me? You see, my gut is if you say no to that question, it's because you're looking to your circumstances. But if we look to the cross, here we can see the living God, the King of Kings, lowering himself, dying so that you can have life. As you came in this morning, do you think that God is good? Do you genuinely think that God is good? You see, again, my gut is, if we answer no to that, it's because we're looking to our circumstances. And this is not to undermine circumstances, of course. We face the struggles and the challenges of life, and those things are real. But God's goodness cannot be determined by our circumstances. But, but you see, when we look at the cross, we see a God who did something about it. Is God kind and is God good? Yes, the cross tells us that. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we can experience that. Because at the cross, when we put our trust in Jesus, we receive cleansing. 
We receive forgiveness. We receive redemption and restoration. We're brought back inside into relationship. And here at the cross, we get to experience the kindness and goodness of God. So we see the kindness and goodness of Jesus as he washes his disciples' feet. We experience the kindness and goodness of Jesus as we look to the cross. But the final question then is, okay, so how do we pursue kindness and goodness? How do we be a people who reflect this? Well, as Ross read out before, in John chapter 13, from verse 12 to 17, Jesus kind of uh, speaks of the fact that as we've experienced this, we'll go and do this. He says it in verse 15, I've set you the example so that you should do this. Then he says, a servant's not greater than his master, in verse 16, and in verse 17, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. So there's this sense that Jesus understood, if we experience the kindness and goodness of, of God, then we too will become a people who are kind and good. But you see, when we think about pursuing kindness and goodness, let's go to another passage of the Bible. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 2, because it's quite powerful, as Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi, he speaks of the stuff that we've looked at today, and he speaks about what it looks like to pursue kindness and goodness in a practical sense. But a practical sense that's so grounded in what Jesus has done. So if you've got your Bibles there, flick over to Philippians chapter 2. It'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, but we pick it up in chapter 2 verse 1, and just notice how what we've spoken about this morning is, so, is just covered in Paul's words in chapter 2 from 1 to 11. He says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, our king became a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how do we pursue kindness and goodness? How do we pursue greatness in this way? Well, I, I love the way that Paul starts because he speaks about your experience of Jesus. Did you notice that in verse 1? If you've got anything from being united with Christ. And look at the words, comfort from His love, sharing, common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Do, do you see this? We've, I mean, we've looked at this every time. We've looked at a fruit of the Spirit in this um, series. Every aspect of it, for us to pursue these things, it has to be grounded in us experiencing this first and foremost in Jesus. Us being a great church is not just us pursuing these works, it's us first and foremost being grounded in our experience of Jesus. And it's not just a once-off experience, it's, a, it's an ongoing experience. 
We are united with Christ. We are comforted. But he says, so if you've got any of these things, if you've experienced this, then here's what to pursue. And as we think about kindness and goodness, what we're going to do is we're going to zoom in to verse 3 and verse 4. And particularly, let's start with verse 3, because he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. So if you've experienced the kindness and goodness of Jesus, then do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Now, it's interesting, because he starts with attitudes to avoid. And uh, kindness and goodness... We've been talking about the opposites and the counterfeit through this series. Kindness and goodness takes us, uh, uh, the opposites and the counterfeit are a little bit more subtle than perhaps the other ones, but you can capture them in selfish ambition or vain conceit. And uh, as we think about this a little bit, there are four attitudes to avoid when we're trying to pursue kindness and goodness that have to do with selfish ambition or vain conceit. So here's the four attitudes to avoid. The number one thing to avoid is uh, the English word malicious joy, or the German word is schadenfreude. Now, that's the one German word I know, but sometimes we use German, uh, this German word, in our English, and what this word means is when you find joy in other people's pain. Now, we've all been there. Let's be real. And uh, it can come through sport, it can come through friends, it can come in family, it can come really particularly when anyone we don't like, when something bad happens to them. Schadenfreude is that experience where you find a joy in your heart because of the pain that someone else is going through. Now, we've been there, right? You, you know, this is often comes through gossip when we're smiling about people's bad experiences But of course, this is selfish and vain. And it's an attitude we must be aware of and call out. And it's an attitude to avoid. Now, it is fascinating that Jesus washed Judas' feet. You know, when we're thinking about this, Judas was at the table. We find it awkward to go face to face with someone we don't like. Let alone think about sitting at a whole meal with someone we don't like. And Jesus washes his feet. So the first attitude to avoid is malicious joy or schadenfreude. The second one is envy. Now this is like schadenfreude. It's not finding joy in people's pain. Instead, it's finding pain in people's joy. Now this comes up a lot in Galatians 5. Well, twice in Galatians 5. And you've got, in Galatians 5, you've got the fruit of the Spirit. And and then you've got also before it the works of the flesh. And there's this sense, you take off the works of the flesh and you put on the fruit of the Spirit. And envy is one of those things. It comes up twice. Um, in the works of the flesh, and then after the fruit of the Spirit. And envy is where we find pain in other people's joy. Now again, this is selfish and vain. So kindness is desiring someone's best and their happiness. But of course, you can see how envy would be the opposite. Now, we again, all of us know this. We've all experienced this. Often it comes through our peers, people closest to us, in the same life stage as us. When we're comparing things where they're like us, you know, it could be comparing grades at school, it could be comparing relationships after school, it could be comparing kids, it could, could be comparing jobs, anything. Envy is the experience that we have when our first reaction when someone tells us something good is not joy for them, but pain in our hearts. That too is something to avoid. So schadenfreude, envy. The third one is hypocrisy. Now we know hypocrisy is something to avoid, throughout life. But when when it comes to kindness and goodness, the reality of hypocrisy is where we say we desire people's best, but we don't do anything about it. Now, this is subtle, I think, when it comes to kindness and goodness, because this 
this could play out like this. You know, if you say, I love my neighbor, and let's actually just think about our actual neighbors. If you say, I love my neighbor, but you don't even know your neighbor's names, that is hypocrisy when it comes to kindness and goodness. Because at the, when the rubber hits the road, you just can't be bothered. Or my time is more important. Or I don't want to go knock on someone's door because that's weird. We, I know that. We've been there. Hypocrisy in this space might be saying, I love my family, but I'm too busy to spend time with them. Hypocrisy at church could be when you say, I love my church, but you don't speak to anyone on a Sunday. Or you don't make an effort to get to know anyone, or you don't serve in any way. Now, the heart of this is where we're kind, so that's good, we got something. We desire people's best, but not goodness. This too is selfish and vain. And then the last one, number four. Uh, we got manipulated good deeds, the fourth one. So manipulated good deeds is where we have goodness but not kindness. So this one too is a little bit more subtle because you think about it, it's obvious, right, in some ways where you do something nice for people when you want their money or their stuff, they've got something to give you. But I think the subtle version of this is just where we are nice to people because we want them to think good of us. It's manipulation. Um, and so uh, I think sometimes, you know, this could be at church, if we're thinking about it at church, you know, we smile, we do nice things for people, but deep down we don't actually want their best. One way that I've seen this in my own heart is saying something like, I love them, but I don't have to like them. You know what that's saying? It's saying, I'm okay to be good to them, I'm okay to smile and be their friend, but deep down I don't genuinely desire what's best. Now, Paul, in verse 3, says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So he calls it there. Four attitudes to avoid. So the question is then, okay, so what do we pursue? How do we avoid this? How do we overcome these attitudes that are so present within all of us? What do we do with this? Well, he tells us. He says, rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Later, he says, in your relationships with one another, in verse 5, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. How do we overcome this? We put on Christ. We follow Jesus, the King of kings, who didn't put himself in prominence and power, but rather lowered himself, became a servant, and counted others better than himself. That's what Jesus did. And so if we can take this attitude and, and put it into our lives, the reality is it will transform us. I mean, just think about those words there. Value others better than yourselves. Value others above yourself. Count others more significant than yourselves. Who's that? Everyone. Younger, older, the same, different, whoever it is. Can you imagine if this actually played out for us? These words are unbelievable. Yet this is what he calls us to. This is what God calls us to in light of what Jesus has done for us. He calls us to have the attitude among ourselves where we value others above ourselves. Now, if we can do this, it will transform us. This is at its heart. If we grasp a hold of the attitude that Jesus had at the cross, this will transform everything. It will transform your home, it will transform your work, it will transform our church. Because we, we have to lower ourselves to be kind and good. Have you ever noticed that? It's very hard to be kind to people if you think you're better than them. 
It's impossible to do anything good for people if you think you deserve it best. But if we can value others above ourselves, it will transform us. Now, I'd love to share with you this morning how I've seen this in my life. Because I haven't always lived a life where I have done this. And I'm still on a journey of trying to figure this out. Uh, But I mentioned a few weeks ago how at 18 I became a Christian. But my family took me faithfully to church for 18 years of my life. But for the first 18 years of my life, um, I genuinely thought that I was better than everyone. And what that meant is, and particularly when it comes to church, what that meant is at church, I had a consumer attitude. So my heart at church was, how can these people serve me? And when they didn't serve me the way I wanted to, I complained about it. So I hated our youth group because it didn't have people my age. It didn't serve me. They were all younger than me. So I complained about that. I complained about the music because it didn't suit me. I complained about the sermons because it didn't interest me. I complained about the people because I didn't like them. And I complained about everything else as well. That was the nature of my experience with church growing up because I thought that I was the best. Now, God, in His grace, saved me. And He taught me and humbled me to realize that I couldn't save myself, that I wasn't the best. And God helped me see that actually the best is Jesus. And He cleansed me from my sin. He helped me see that I couldn't clean myself. And it was such a moment of grace for me to realize that I was deeply sinful and that God loved me. But what happened from that moment was I began to go on this journey of seeing that the world didn't revolve around me, it revolved around Jesus. Now, it is a journey. Um, And if you've known me for more than five minutes, you know I'm on this journey. You know that I'm a work in progress like everyone else. But this verse here, for me, was transformative to actually count others better than ourselves. Now, I want to give a practical example of this as well. When it comes to criticism, this, is, this changes the way that you take criticism. Now, we've been joking in the last few weeks about um, the sinful response that we have, the unhealthy responses we have in conflict, rhinos and hedgehogs. We've been talking about that. Rhinos attack and defend, hedgehogs retreat, and put their spikes up. Rhinos are aggressive, hedgehogs are passive-aggressive, and I am a rhino. And uh, so what happens is, when criticism comes my way, my default sinful reaction is I want to attack and I want to defend. Now, I remember a few years ago, um, I received some criticism. And it was, it was hard to hear. I mean, criticism is never easy to hear, because it's this moment where other people recognize your weakness as well. And so I remember it being hard to hear, but God in His grace put this verse in front of me. These words here. In humility, value others above yourselves. So my gut reaction is to attack and defend, but do you see what happens if I value others above myself? Instead of attacking and defending... God was kind to me to help me listen and understand and apologize before responding. This verse changed my life. It changed how I interacted in that very moment. Now again, I'm not sharing this because I have it down pat. You you would know this if you know me. 
I am on a journey growing in this. But this idea here will truly transform every aspect of your life if we can take this attitude like Jesus and count others better than ourselves. I mean, you think about it, right? From home to work to church. I mean, think about it at home, right? So often at home, um, you know, you think about certain moments that we have throughout our week at home. Um, You know, you get home from work. And there's always this question, who looks after the kids? Who gets time to rest? Well, if the attitude is, I value the others in my house better than myself, who cares? You see how that changes that exact moment? Or you think about when your kids interrupt you. What's our default in that moment when our kids interrupt us? I know it. My heart fires up in that moment. But what if I count my kids more significant than myself? If I value them above myself, you see, that's going to change the way I interact in that moment. It changes how we deal with conflict, right? We're not going to be rhinos or hedgehogs. We're going to listen and respond and think of the other person and their critique above ourselves. It will change our home lives. It will change our work, right? I mean, you think about it. Today, some of you here this morning are bosses. What if you treated those under you in your workplace as better than yourself? What if you valued their time, their input, what they're doing higher than you value your own. It will change the way you treat them. Or what about, you know, there's some of us who have bosses. I know it's our day and age to rip into our boss. I know we love doing that. But what if we actually counted our boss better than ourselves? It would change the way we respond to them. It would change the way we speak about them. Or of course, at church. If we rocked up this morning as we came through those doors and our attitude wasn't, how can this place serve me? How can this place be the thing that fulfills my desires? But what if on the way in this morning we had this attitude that everyone else here is better than myself? That would change us. That would change who you talk to. It would change who you interact with where you sit. It would change how you see problems and how you talk about problems. It might change from things like, how are you going to fix this to how can I help be the solution to this? If we had this attitude at our church where we didn't lift ourselves up but lowered ourselves and counted the other people around us better than ourselves, it would transform our church. And it will change us into the likeness of Jesus Because that's what he did. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, lowered himself to be a servant. You see, the greatness of our church isn't going to come from us being kings and queens, rising to prominence. No, it's going to come through us lowering ourselves to servanthood. And from that attitude where we count others better than ourselves, kindness and goodness will flow. Because there we will sincerely desire other people's best and then do something about it. In your relationships with one another, Paul says, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that as we think about our response, we thank you so much that you are the God who lowered yourself first. We thank you that we can have this experience of the kindness and goodness of the living God because of what we see at the cross. God, we pray that you would give us the grace to experience this, to enjoy this, and to keep coming back to the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the fact that we have been united to Christ. 
God, we pray that from here, from this position where we understand that we were not saved because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did, that you would give us a deep humility where we value others above ourselves. And from here, church, uh, from here, God, that we would be a church that is great, but pursues greatness by lowering ourselves and serving one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.